Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with the expected but radical act of judicial activism from a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas, who is a far-right anti-abortion zealot chosen by a front group of anti-abortion zealots who expected him to rule against science in a nakedly political way to ban a medical abortion drug on the specious grounds that it had not been adequately tested, even though Mifepristone has been on the market for 23 years and is safer than Viagra or Tylenol. Joining us is Caroline Fredrickson, a distinguished professor of practice at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center, and the President Emerita of the American Constitution Society. She's the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections, and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. Caroline previously served as the Director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and as a General Counsel and Legal Director for NARAL Pro-Choice America. And during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And we will discuss her article at Just Security. It's time for the Supreme Court to take ethics seriously. Then we'll examine the shadow network of plutocrats and dark money behind the capture of our judiciary by the far right, with the Supreme Court now bent on undoing government oversight in the service of laissez-faire capitalism while inflicting the moral authoritarianism of extreme religious conservatives on the diverse majority of Americans. Joining us is Anne Nelson, an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. Her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Then finally, following the display of fascism in the anti-democratic railroading of democratic lawmakers by the Republican supermajority in the Tennessee State House, we will speak with Jeff Charlotte, the New York Times bestselling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into the Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LGBTQ rights around the world has received the National Magazine Award, the Molly Ivins Prize, and Outright International's Outspoken Award. And he is a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. We'll discuss his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. And before we begin, I would like to thank our sustaining listeners whose continued and growing support for background briefing enable us to remain independent without corporate underwriting, commercials, paywalls, or constant fundraising as we deliver a daily news analysis by seeking out the most knowledgeable experts closest to the scene to explore three or more major stories and issues in depth with our sound bites and spin. As a dangerous and devious serial liar and selfish sociopath continues to haunt our politics and poison our social discourse, whose angry and armed followers assault our democracy and attempt to impose a tyranny of the minority in lockstep with their fraudulent wannabe mob boss and Fuhrer, your monthly donations, large and small, at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or at our tax-deductible non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation at publictruthmedia.org contribute to an informed citizenry needed to protect and defend the will of the majority as we work to build a reality-based community in post-truth America. And joining us now is Caroline Fredrickson, a distinguished professor of practice at Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center, and the president emerita of the American Constitution Society. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. She's also the leader of the progressive team for the National Constitution Center's Constitution Drafting Project, 
and a senior congressional fellow at the Stennis Centre and is the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts and Fair Elections and The AOC Way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. Caroline previously served as the director of the ACLU's Washington office and as general counsel and legal director for NARAL Pro-Choice America. And during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And she has an op-ed at Just Security. It's time for the Supreme Court to take ethics seriously. Welcome to Background Briefing, Caroline Fredrickson. Thank you, Ian. It's always a pleasure to be on your show. Well, thanks for joining us, Caroline. And I just wanted to touch on uh, what uh, happened on Friday. It's not a surprise, but it's nevertheless a really brazen display of judicial activism, something that the conservatives have always accused the liberals of, but uh, now the shoe is clearly on the other foot with this expected but radical act of judicial activism from a federal judge in Amarillo, Texas, who is a far-right anti-abortion zealot, and he was specifically chosen to do what he did by a front group of anti-abortion zealots. He ruled against science in this nakedly political way to ban a medical abortion drug on the specious grounds that it had not been adequately tested, even though Mifepristone has been on the market for 23 years and is safer than Viagra and Tylenol. So what do we do? I mean, are we victims of post-truth America? Are we victims of the tyranny of the minority? I mean, this is outrageous. Well, um, to some extent, yes, we are. Um, I mean, this is a very, very dangerous situation because... uh, a number of the conservative appointees, but especially the Trump appointees, who were really um, mostly hand-selected by the Federalist Society, by Leonard Leo, um, to be the embodiment of this far, far right, um, anti-constitutional uh, understanding. Uh, it's sort of whatever we think is what the law is. Um, and Judge Kaczmarek really, um, uh, he's emblematic of the 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 kind of judges that now make up a surprisingly large share of the federal bench. So we are in a very dangerous situation. I think it's really important, um, and I am pleased that it seems like voters, uh, um, moderate and and more progressive voters, are now all of a sudden starting to put value on the court system in, in, in the, hopefully to the same extent that those on the right have and understand that we really need to pay attention to uh, who sits on these courts um, and not allow... Um, uh, Democrats to avoid putting good people on the courts, not to take it seriously, uh, because look at how many uh, aspects of our lives are controlled by this uh, uh, out-of-control federal judiciary. Well, you mentioned Leonard Leo, and one of the few champions challenging the far-right capture of the Supreme Court in a combination of uh, plutocrats uh, getting laissez-faire capitalism and extreme religious zealots getting moral authoritarianism is Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, who said, and you mentioned Leonard Leo, he said, Leonard Leo and other right-wing fixers, you should know they don't just have business before the court, their business is the court. <laughs> so it, It's so true. Um, and, you know, I, I think we can't even ha- have this conversation without also talking about Clarence Thomas. Um, who, uh, if this decision by Judge Kismarek out of Amarillo ends up going to the Supreme Court, I, you know, I, oh, if I had a million dollars to bet, I would bet that Justice Thomas would vote to uphold it, um, despite the fact that it's based on nothing more than his own personal beliefs that abortion is wrong. Uh, but Sheldon Whitehouse and, and, and Congressman Hank Johnson just sent a letter um, to the chief justice calling for an investigation of this blockbuster story out of ProPublica that Clarence Thomas, well, he calls himself, you know, a, a Walmart kind of guy, likes to drive around the country and stay in Walmart parking lots in his RV, um, is in fact living at, living large, um, uh, taking a billionaire funded luxury travel on yachts and private jets and taking all sorts of gifts. Um, and none of it, um, uh, being disclosed, um, and there's really no consequence for him. Uh, and White House and Johnson um, have asked now for the Chief Justice to uh, investigate um, uh, uh, to what extent we. There are other things that we don't even know, and and what are the actual um, uh, 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 
uh, uh, responses that could be made by the court to this kind of deeply unethical and possibly corrupt and un unlawful conduct. But in terms of banning Mifepistone, just to follow up on that a little, because there's a countervailing action by a federal judge in the state of Washington. And of course, the governor of Washington has been stockpiling Mifepistone as well. So what's your sense as somebody that was the chief counsel for Narrow Pro-Choice America? What's the countervailing strategy here? The DOJ has already, already weighed in against this but what are the strategies to try and stop this you know well um you know i think you know obviously having having the washington state judge um federal judge um issue his opinion um uh, exactly the same time um there are going to be other lawsuits brought in other courtrooms and i think the supreme court will will be facing this question quite uh quickly because there will be um i think an incredibly uh, overwhelming response that we'll find the FDA completely within appropriate use of its power 23 years ago to approve mifepristone, which has been um, then subsequently proven to be extraordinarily safe, much more, much safer than childbirth, um, by the way. Um, but those cases will then make their way to the Supreme Court, whereas I think even this Supreme Court will be have a hard time ruling with Judge Kaczmarek because the overwhelming legal authority is on the other side. And it's one thing to be um, uh, rabidly anti-choice. It's another thing to open up all of our drugs um, to crazy activist lawsuits to undo people's access to uh, life-saving medications. Um, and so I think the implications of ruling with Judge Kaczmarek are so profound that um, I, I imagine the Justice Department, even though they're probably generally pretty leery of, of having many of you know government regulations in front of this Supreme Court, um, probably think this is one that they could win and win decisively, and I think um, uh, and and knock Kazmarek back on his heels and show what a you know what a sham he is in terms of being a you know a, a, a somebody who claims to be upholding the Constitution as he did when he took his vows uh, and took his oath of office to become a uh, to become a judge. But unfortunately, we saw this display of anti-democratic legislative thuggery in the State House in Tennessee. And the way that that Dobbs decision was leaked deliberately, and apparently the speculation is that it was Thomas and Alito, it was such a crude power move, but it apparently had the effect of stopping the negotiations between Chief Justice Roberts and Kavanaugh, who might have been wavering for a less drastic ruling. That's what bothers me, is that there's this sort of, you know, rise of sort of fascist, anti-democratic legislative thuggery and the tyranny of the minority now acting with sort of thuggish intent. No, absolutely. But, you know, Ian, I think um, I guess the 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 events of the past week that I would draw hope from um, are, you know, what happened in, in Wisconsin. So that is the answer. That is the answer, really, is um, even in the face of um, incredible gerrymandering on the right, um, mobilization um, and voting is what is going to um, uh, take away their power. Um, we know that they're that they're facing uh, the inevitable demise of their kind of uh, of whatever aspirations they have for what America should look like, which is basically a male and very Christian, apparently um, uh, white, um, and that this this nation is is turning browner, is is becoming more progressive, is much more open to. Um, people who don't fit into clear gender boxes. Um, and um, that's the world that they, they can't bear um, to see coming, but it's coming. But we need to fight in order to make sure that, uh, that their, people's lives aren't sacrificed along the way. I mean, that's what's gonna happen to so many women who need these important medications and so many others who are suffering from the kind of reactionary and rabid right-wing rulings uh, of the, the courts and the Supreme Court included. 
Well, it's a, a battle ahead, given how Alec, uh, the American Legislative Exchange Council, with Koch brothers' money and other plutocrats' money, have put these right-wing legislators in to create supermajorities. So, you know, the Democrats have got to step up here, and it's, you know, <laughs> it's a big task ahead, right, to overturn supermajorities. It sure is. It sure is. But um, Wisconsin, I think many people thought was a lost cause, and yet it's not. Um, and you know, the the next the next step is is there will be a challenge now to the to the legislative maps in Wisconsin. Um, uh, the apportionment of state house seats and the and the um, congressional seats. Um, and there are many people who think there may be an effort by the the, the state house Republicans who gerrymandered themselves to a, a supermajority. Um, to impeach the justices if they rule that the maps are are, are illegal and unconstitutional um, uh, under Wisconsin law. Um, and so how do we respond to that? Um, you know, that's sort of, it, it may be unlikely, it certainly would be politically dangerous for the Republicans there to do that over the overwhelming, overwhelming victory of, of the um, judge. Judge Janet, yeah. Judge Janet, thank you. I was thinking about how to pronounce her last name. I got Kazmarek down, but I. Um, <laughs> yeah, well. But, uh, Judge Janet, and you know, I think I think that, you know, what what would happen if they tried to do that, um, based on the fact that they didn't like a ruling, um, it's not a basis for impeachment in under Wisconsin um, in Wisconsin's constitution. Um, so we'll see what happens, but um, but we have to be ready in case they decide that they, they were going to try and go that far. Well, Caroline Fredrickson, I thank you so much for joining us here today. I appreciate it. You're welcome. Anytime. And again, I've been speaking with Caroline Fredrickson, a distinguished professor from, of practice at the Georgetown University, a senior fellow at the Brennan Center, and a president emeritus of the American Constitution Society. In 2021, she was appointed a member of the President's Commission on the Supreme Court of the United States. She's also the leader of the progressive team for the National Constitution Center's Constitution Drafting Project and a senior congressional fellow at the Stennis Center and the author of The Democracy Fix, How to Win the Fight for Fair Rules, Fair Courts, and Fair Elections and the AOC way, The Secrets of Alexandria Ocasio-Cortez's Success. And Caroline previously served as the director of the ACLU's Washington Legislative Office and as general counsel and legal director of Narrow Pro-Choice America. And during the Clinton administration, she served as a special assistant to the president for legislative affairs. And she has an op-ed at Just Security. It's time for the Supreme Court to take ethics seriously. We're going to take a brief station break and back examining the shadow network of plutocrats and dark money behind the capture of our judiciary by the far right. Burning I seek Jesus coming. Jesus comes to pave the way. Do you believe in his sweet sensation? Do you believe in second chance? Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Anne Nelson, the author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for the Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground, and The Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. Welcome to Background Briefing, Anne Nelson. Thanks, Ian. Well, thanks for joining us. And this last week has been quite extraordinary and tumultuous. You had... Trump's indictments, uh, Wisconsin Supreme Court elections, uh, Tennessee's expulsion of two uh, Democratic lawmakers and an attempt to expel a third, and now the abortion uh, pill decision, which has just come down, not not unexpected, but certainly 
devastating for women across this country. So, in fact, um, one of the three lawmakers in the, t- in the Tennessee State House that was supposed to be expelled, uh, Gloria Johnson, who wasn't ex- expelled because, as she said, because she's white, she said in the middle of all the demonstrations in the, in the Capitol, she said, we're going to stomp out the march of fascism. How much do you see the march of fascism stomping us out? Well, as I wrote about in my book, Shadow Network, there has been a carefully orchestrated plan to take the levers of power in this country over a period of not years, but but decades. And a lot of elements were laid in place and went unnoticed for many years. And, and now they're being activated. So you have, you know, one thing that you have in Tennessee is this growing urban population, uh, but you've had the state gerrymandered in such a way that Democratic voters have disproportionately few seats in the legislature. And then you have these laws being passed by the legislature and measures taken by the legislature, which uh, do not coincide with with the opinion of, of many voters who are are effectively disenfranchised by these uh, underhanded mechanics of procedure. So uh, that's not just going on in Tennessee. It is going on in many, many states. Many of them coincide to what was the Confederate South. And our problem is that that we have such a kind of cumbersome, antiquated uh, machinery of government that the only way that these Tennessee legislators felt they could contest what was going on was through through a protest. Um, and and then procedure was called into action against them. And, and two of them have been neutralized and the other one is in peril. And a lot of other public servants and representatives have, have been marginalized. So that's where we are in many states. Uh, Florida, Texas, Tennessee, Oklahoma, the list goes on and on. So it's no accident and that the three lawmakers, Gloria Johnson and, and the two Justins, represent the three biggest cities in uh, Tennessee, Knoxville, Nashville, and Memphis. Absolutely. And if you look at the map of the United States, urban areas are, uh, are, are pretty much democratic, uh, and rural areas are pretty much uh Republican, and then you've got all of these purple suburbs where a lot of the decisive votes and elections are taking place. So the strategy has been to give excessive power to rural, older, white Republican voters through maneuvers in state house and electoral college and Senate representation, which again serves to disenfranchise the growing majority of urban Democratic voters. So turning to your book, Anne Nelson, Shadow Network, Media, Money, and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, there's been a little bit of a a break in the kind of uh, shadow. <laughs> little light is being shed in that shadow world by a really good piece by these three investigative reporters at ProPublica, Joshua Kaplan, Justin Elliott, and Alex Majeski. The piece is titled Clarence Thomas and the Billionaire. And I know it comes as no surprise to you that Thomas has been faded by billionaires, even though he did a, they made a documentary. In fact, the billionaire financed this documentary where Clarence Thomas talked about how he's a humble guy from a humble background and he likes to hang out in Walmart parking lots. But the reality is he likes to fly around in private jets, take incredibly lavish vacations, and spend a lot of time at this uh, resort that... Harlan Crow, his patron, uh, the billionaire, has uh, in the Adirondacks. There's a painting, apparently. <laughs> this, in fact, there's a picture of it in the article of Harlan Crow hanging out with Clarence Thomas at his uh, Adirondacks retreat with none other than Leonard Leo. So, and Harlan Crow turned out to be one of these uh, Opus Day types as well. So, it's an amazing story, isn't it? And but for Senator Sheldon Whitehouse, nobody in our politics is taking on the fact that these right-wing oligarchs have found an end run around the legislative and executive branches by capturing the Supreme Court. 
Well, and it's not just the Supreme Court. Uh, this is this is part of an overarching strategy. I'm very disappointed that the various publications, including the major newspapers, do not systematically note that the Council for National Policy is the connective tissue for these operations. Thomas's wife, Ginny Thomas, is on the board of directors of CNP Action, their lobbying arm. Leo is on the board of governors, Leonard Leo. He's been part of the judicial strategy for, for decades, not just years. Uh, you have a lot of coordination. And, and I just, I, I, I would like all of your listeners to please, please go to YouTube and look at CNP February 2020 remarks, Shackelford. And you've got Kelly Shackelford, who is another, who's the head of the CNP Action Board, works directly with Ginny Thomas, talking about their strategy for the judicial appointments. And he says Trump came to them and they had a discussion about how they could advise him on the Supreme Court justices to tilt the court, which they did, and how they followed up with Trump's appointments for the federal judiciary at the at the second and third tier. He lays it out. He has a map and the map shows where these appointments have taken place. And of course, they include the judge in Texas that just made the ruling on the abortion pills. So uh, I don't know how much more blatant this operation can be. Uh, the problem is that if you identify it as all of these separate little initiatives and operations, it looks like a quasi-democratic uh, initiative. Like, oh, all these grassroots groups have decided that the people want such and such. No, it was a highly coordinated plan that has been systematically implemented. And if the press doesn't point that out, I don't know how people are going to realize what's being done to them. No, I watched that video of Kelly Shackelford, the CEO of the First Liberty Institute, a forum held by the Council for National Policy, which Ginny Thomas is a part of, and it's just absolutely chilling. And he was basically crowing about uh, how successful they've been and how obedient the judges that Trump's appointed have been, Gorsuch and Kavanaugh and Amy Coney Barrett, and how they're appointing these younger judges who'll be around for our grandkids and how the Ninth Circuit Court, the Liberal Court out here in the West, is uh, they're only two seats away from flipping that, and they flipped uh, a lot of the others already. So I guess what puzzles me, Anne, is in the deal that he talks about, sitting down with Trump, and they laid out their strategy, and they've largely succeeded. What is in it for Trump? I understand that maybe the deal was that he had to take on Mike Pence in order to get the evangelical vote. And, of course, Pence would want all of this stuff done. But what what's in it for Trump? I mean, the guy's an absolute libertine of the worst type. So he's not religious. He doesn't care about God and separation of church and state and all this stuff. So what's your explanation for that? Well, I laid it out blow by blow in my book, Shadow Network, in a chapter called The Art of the Deal, uh, after Trump's famous book. And the reality was that Trump even took himself by surprise by winning the nomination through capitalizing on his television celebrity. Uh, so he defeated the the other Republican candidates. The CNP was, was also very supportive of Ted Cruz and Marco Rubio, uh, as well as Mike Pence. And, and a lot of them were never Trumpers. So they were faced with the prospect of losing the election to Hillary Clinton, which they found unacceptable, or cutting a deal with Trump, who was not of their tribe in religious terms. He was a libertine, but not a libertarian. And he also had no policies of his own. But uh, even more pertinent, he had no war chest for the election. He had no ground game. He had no canvassers or party structure. He had no no strategists. And so the Council for National Policy and its fundamentalist network came to Trump and basically gave him an electoral campaign in a box 
We'll give you everything. We'll give you the money, the ground game, the strategists, the canvassers. You'll give us the courts. And the way you'll give us the courts is we'll give you a list that's assembled by the Heritage Foundation, the Federalist Society, which Leonard Leo was running, the National Rifle Association, another CNP organization. Uh, obviously, Kelly Shackelford and First Liberty were part of the conversation. They gave Trump the list. Trump drew on the list through his appointments. And, you know, my book has a link to the little victory party they held at the White House after after the first appointment with all of these people in attendance celebrating with Trump and well on the way to tilting the court to the most conservative court, certainly in our lifetimes, and one that runs against public opinion, social policy, and actively strips Americans of civil and political rights that have been established for years. But this is being done via dark money, through these dark money vehicles that came out following the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. And a lot of the dark money comes from these billionaires like Harlan Crow, who hosts Clarence Thomas and Ginny Thomas on these lavish vacations, etc., I mean, without this dark money, I don't think this would be happening, right? And now you've got Leonard Leo getting $1.6 billion for just from one of these right-wing plutocrats. So that's the mechanism, isn't it? What we're talking about here is a combination of the right-wing plutocrats getting laissez-faire capitalism and the religious fanatics getting moral authoritarianism. Yes, although I do want to point out that the, the right-wing uh, correctly points out that there's dark money on both sides. Uh, mm -hmm. Citizens United opened the door for dark money. Uh, I think that the big difference is that the right and the fundamentalist and the fossil fuels interests have been much more expert in strategic thinking and long-term planning. Uh, there's a lot of behavior on the part of the Democrats that say, oh, we've got the majority of public opinion on our side, uh, we've got we've got the future on our side, democratic uh, in terms of the demographics of the United States, where women, minorities, immigrants, religious minorities are growing populations. But that has caused them to be more passive and less strategic in the way they've approached these elections, especially in swing states that Americans on the coast don't uh, don't pay attention to. You know, for example, Missouri, Tennessee. Uh, what is the systematic coverage of states like that um, in, in the major media outlets? And yet they, they can play, you know, as they move from purple to blood red in their, in their voting patterns, they have a disproportionate weight within our electoral system. But what is the link then, though, between the wish list of the plutocrats and the religious zealotry of the Opus Dei and Christian fundamentalist types like Linda Leo and, and the judge that just banned the abortion pill. What, what's the link there? I mean, it seems to me that, again, it's a, it seems to be that you've got a compact between laissez-faire capitalism and moral authoritarianism. Yes, and you also have a marriage of convenience. So on the religious fundamentalist front, they want to roll back social policies to even, you know, like a 19th century level. Um, and in fact, in this, this recent Texas abortion ruling, they're going back to the Comstock law of the 19th century, literally uh, imposing uh, these restrictions on women's lives, which is hard for me to believe, but there it is. On the fossil fuels and plutocrats level, what they want is an elimination of social programs, an elimination of basically the entire bundle of, of federally tax financed programs in the public interest. So you'll see a concerted effort against public health in the form of COVID disinformation and attacks on our doctors and our medical staffs happening all over the country. You'll see attacks on public schools, on public school teachers, school teacher unions, school boards. Some of these are, are nasty and involve death threats and vandalism. This is going on all over the country. It's being coordinated by Council for National Policy groups like the Leadership Institute, the Family Research Council. 
Well, once you eliminate or cripple these programs, you don't need the tax base to finance them. So that's where the interests converge, right? If you uh, remove the tax base and the regulatory mechanisms like the Environmental Protection Agency, you allow these, these corporate interests and high net worth individuals a kind of laissez-faire environment uh, that could be a new era of the robber barons. That's what they're aspiring to. They don't want to pay taxes and they don't want to support anyone else in any way. So that's, that's the concerted effort. And they're being very successful at it. They well, they are it. because the other side is not is not playing defense, and you know, much less playing offense. So right. they kind of have the run of the field. Right. Well, I'm going to link to uh, uh, backgroundbriefing.org this YouTube video of Kelly Shackelford, the CEO of the First Liberty Institute, speaking before the Council for National Policy about the strategy that they have employed in order to wake up every progressive in this country to realize that <laughs> how, how far behind in the battle they are and how they've got to step up. So any last thoughts here before we close? Yeah, Anne? I mean, I, I also have been tweeting uh, constant updates on this front. So, you know, if, if people want to follow my Twitter feed, they'll find a lot of information that is both background and updates on, on this. And uh, all I can say is that, uh, you know, in this video, Kelly Shackelford says we are changing the future, right? We are actively altering the future. And uh, I, I, I hope people realize that, that there are going to be victims in this process. You know, it, it will be, you know, young trans people that are denied medical care. It will be children who are victims of rape who can't have a procedure to allow them to continue with their lives. There are going to be human victims in this process. Uh, they don't really seem to have any compassion for the people who will get hurt by this. And I, I just feel that it's so important that we stand up for our fellow citizens in this period where their rights are being stripped away from them. Well, Ann Nelson, I thank you very much for joining us here today. Thank you, Ian. And again, I've been speaking with Ann Nelson, who's an author and lecturer in the fields of international affairs, media, and human rights. As a journalist, she covered the conflicts in El Salvador and Guatemala and won the Livingston Award for Best International Reporting from the Philippines. She served as the director of the Committee to Protect Journalists and was the director of the international program at the Columbia School of Journalism, where she created the first curriculum in human rights reporting. Her books include Red Orchestra, The Berlin Underground and the Circle of Friends Who Resisted Hitler, and Suzanne's Children, A Daring Rescue in Nazi Paris. And her latest book is Shadow Network, Media, Money and the Secret Hub of the Radical Right, now out in an updated paperback version. We're going to take a brief station break. We're back looking into the display of fascism and anti-democratic railroading of Democratic lawmakers by the Republican supermajority in the Tennessee State House, and talk with the author of the new bestseller, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. How much are you worth? I have no idea. How much do you want? No, I just want to know what you're worth. Over 10 million? Oh, my, yes. Why are you doing it? How much better can you eat? What can you buy that you can't already afford? The future, Mr. Gitz. The future. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Jeff Charlotte, the New York Times bestselling author or editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LBGTQ rights around the world has received the National Magazine Award, the Molly Ivins Prize, and Outright International's Outspoken Award. And he's a professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College. And his latest book, a New York Times bestseller is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jeff Charlotte. Hi, Ian. Good to be with you. Well, thanks for joining us, Jeff. And The Undertow suggests that we are being sucked into treacherous waters. And uh, I must say what we saw in the last few days in the State House in Tennessee was pretty stark in terms of 
the F word now becoming mainstream in the sense that the young people in the state house demonstrating were chanting at the Republicans, calling them fascists, and there's another chant, you ban books, you ban drag, but don't care about kids in body bags. Gloria Johnson, who was one of the three that was supposed to be expelled but wasn't, and she claims it's because she's white. So she said at one point in the demonstrations that we're going to stomp on the march of fascism. So you were reluctant to use that description, but after your journey into the heartland of America's far right, I take it uh, you think it's maybe becoming an appropriate description. Yeah. In my 2008 book, The Family, I wrote a chapter called The F Word, and it was about a Christian nationalist organization that after, I mean, the book was about many things, but after World War II, uh, uh, actually recruited Nazi war criminals to advise U.S. congressmen. And even then, I said the F word, fascism, wasn't quite correct, not as any defense of that, um, certainly not, um, but as a call for us to recognize that there are more than one kind of bad there's more than one kind of bad under the sun. And we didn't have all the ingredients of classical fascism. Uh, by 2015, when 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 Trump rode down the golden escalator, I recognized that strongman politics, which I'd reported on elsewhere in the world. And I knew that he was drifting toward a fascist politics. Would he build a fascist movement? By January 6, 2021, I think the answer is unqualifiedly yes. And if we just take that example of Tennessee, um, this is what I think of as the undertow. We see this stark moment right now, but there's been an undertow in Tennessee politics and many state politics for many years. So if we, and this is a question, I mean, the subtitle of the undertow is scenes from a slow civil war, but it might be, let's think about how to tell stories about fascism. Because if we look at, here we have an elected body of legislature which has decided that 100,000 mostly black and brown uh, Tennesseans don't get representation, that openly venerates Klansmen, and not just Klansmen, uh, Nathan Bedford Forrest, who didn't just talk genocide, but practiced it, um, that is uh, organized around a cult of personality that openly venerates and celebrates the pleasure of violence. If you look back in the past of this state legislature, we find a Republican lawmaker very credibly accused of sexually assaulting 15 and 16 year olds when they were under his care as a teacher and coach. Even Republicans admitted they found this credible. So what do they do? They made him chair of the education committee. So if we approach this, and I'm afraid some of our colleagues in the press still are without using that F word, fascism, Uh, are we actually being objective? Are we actually doing our job as reporters? Do we go out and when people tell us who they are, do we listen? And that's what I tried to do in this book, The Undertow. It's why it's a book, not of Washington policy, but of traveling the country, talking to the everyday people who have been swept out by this undertow into this fascist movement. But it seems to me, Jeff, that the countervailing... uh, movement of of energized young kids, a kind of rainbow coalition of kids, and these brilliant young African-American lawmakers who were expelled, and they've only been in, in, what, 60 to 90 days in, and their speeches were so passionate and so powerful. I was wondering whether, are we watching a burgeoning movement that's going to take us along the path that Germany went in the late 1930s? Or are we watching the the death throes of kind of racist relics? Well, I think there's two answers to that. One and the most important answer is the central lie of fascism. It's mythology, for that's what it is. It's not even really an ideology. It's a mythology. The central lie is an inevitability, right? You get caught up in an undertow and you feel like no matter how hard you swim, you can't get back to shore, that there's no hope. Well, the reality is people get caught in undertows, riptides, and you know what happens? Lifeguards and other people rescue them. There is no inevitability. Inevitability is a lie. So I agree with you that not just this new movement of youth and young black legislators, but all over the country, there are all kinds of signs of hope and people organizing. That said, I have to 
in the strongest terms, unfortunately, reject the idea that is very seductive uh, to to liberals and leftists and maybe folks who have the good fortune to live in, in great communities that are more uh, open, uh, that this is the death throes. Um, the fastest growing state in the union is Florida. Florida is now unquestionably an openly authoritarian and fascist state. And the, we saw Tennessee the other day, but two other things happened in the last two days, Idaho and Kansas. Kansas passed a law for the genital inspection of children in sports as part of their anti-trans initiative. Idaho has criminalized the transportation of others for abortion. Uh, these aren't death throes. This is part of a fascist ascendancy. And if we frame it as a death throes of an old racist right, we're we're thinking in terms of American exceptionalism. The reality is this global fascist movement includes not just the Trump of the United States, but Erdogan in Turkey, so-called Trump of Turkey uh, in Myanmar. We had a, a Trump of the Philippines and he was replaced by an even more fascist politician. We have Putin, we have Xi who are running fascist states. We have even in Myanmar, there's a Buddhist monk who calls himself the Trump of Myanmar and has been instrumental in the turn of that country back away from its br brief moment of democracy toward fascism and toward genocide against Rohingya Muslims. This is a global moment. It's not a death throes moment. And the reason I resist that is if we tell ourselves that all we have to believe is, don't worry, these guys are going to age out and that we're going to our diversify ourselves to freedom. As I write in the book, in the undertow, Fascism is kind of, it's, it's a, think of it like a black hole and it can draw all kinds of people in. I, I quote a friend of mine, Anthea Butler, a great scholar of, of uh, religious studies in the black church and in her book, White Evangelical Racism, she calls it the promise of whiteness, which offers the people of color willing to make common cause white supremacy, the belief that they will be spared. I saw it all over the country in what I call militia churches, churches that have their own militias that were more diverse than the liberal churches I went to. I saw it there in California at uh, in Sacramento at a rally for Ashley Babbitt, the January 6th insurrectionist, where more than half the speakers, openly fascist speakers, were people of color being drawn into this undertow. We can say, oh, well, gosh, they're fools, but we do so at our own risk. We need to recognize and organize and not count on this movement aging out. Well, Jeff, uh, <laughs> I have to say that Anthea Butler is uh, is on the board of my foundation, the Public Truth Media Foundation. Oh, and great. I greatly admire her, needless to say. But let me correct myself, because the, the reality is that you have a supermajority of Republicans in the state of Tennessee. You have a supermajority almost in, in the state of Wisconsin, but there's been a bit of a reversal there with a, thank God, Janet got elected to the uh, Supreme Court. Uh, you've got Florida, you mentioned, all across the country you've got supermajorities, and this is the work of Alec, choosing these kind of people and having the, the Koch brothers' money behind them. So there's an enormous task ahead. The Democrats are so far behind at state legislatures that there has to be a major national strategy in the, and hope that we reference with the young people demonstrating that has to sort of somehow capture the Democratic Party. I mean, one of our two parties is basically embracing a lawless leader and behaving as fascists. So if the task ahead is monumental, politically speaking. Yeah, it is. And, you know, you named a few states and we can just look uh, at one that really troubled me is North Carolina, where I believe the Republicans uh, have just taken a supermajority. And how did they do it? A so-called moderate Democrat decided to flip. Why did she flip? She said, well, she was being called names for being a moderate Democrat. If being called names is enough to make you a fascist, I question your moderation. And where I live, I live in Vermont. I work in New Hampshire. Our governor, Christian Nunu, is a moderate Republican running in the moderate lane for president. However, uh, Christian Nunu has uh, just said that if Trump is a nominee, he will vote for him. Uh, that's the moderation. The moder And historically, when we look at the history of fascism, um, it moves from the fringe to the center. 
uh, not through the conversion of everybody to its extremism, but by its absorption of the so-called moderates. You mentioned Wisconsin. The penultimate chapter of the undertow is called the Great Acceleration. And I was in Wisconsin after uh, after the Dobbs Supreme Court ruling ending Roe v. Wade. And Wisconsin became the first so-called blue state, because it does have a, a Democratic governor, in which abortion was completely illegal. Uh, they reverted to 1849 law. We've had a great victory there with that judge, but that struggle is far from over, as my friends in Wisconsin know, and far from clear. Uh, so what I did was I roamed around the state and I was talking to everyday people, uh, everyday people with very frightening flags, Trump flags, sure, but flags with AR-15s on them, maybe scariest of all, the flag that I'm seeing all over the country as I travel. It's, a, it's an American flag, but it's entirely in black. Not the, not the Blue Lives Matter flag. This is all black, just shades of black. First time I saw it in Palmyra, New York, I write about in the book, I didn't know what it meant. So I stopped and ended up speaking with a, a homeschooling family that flew it. Uh, they seemed very nice, but their flag stood for no quarter, no mercy, uh, no prisoners of war. And the coming civil war that they believe uh, is, they believe is inevitable because they embrace fascism, uh, if you're, it's a which side are you on deal, and they take no prisoners. They said, we will kill everyone. You either with us or against us. Everybody dies. Um, so I think, right, that's a monumental task. How do we proceed? I, as I say in the beginning of the book, I'm not writing, there's an introduction. You usually write an introduction, summing up. I'm not, I can't make that gesture. I'm writing from the middle of something. We don't know, but I frame the book with, with two chapters that I hope will give some hope. I hope we'll give some hope. Um, and they're not, they're not, we can do it, or the kids are all right, or, or anything like that. I have a suffering child myself, and they have no time for cheap grace. They have no time for it's going to be all right. Um, some of the young people I talk to in the book who are hopeful, but they are angry. Um, I think we look to the past, actually. Not the mythological fat past, but I look to Harry Belfonte, and Lee Hayes, who, who wrote, If I Had a Hammer, these songs that I sang in elementary school that I didn't know were part of a long struggle, a freedom struggle. That's the hope that this struggle has been going on for a long time. Harry Belfonte, still alive in his 90s, the man who made the civil rights movement possible in so many ways by putting his whole star power and bankroll into it, still angry now, still angry. He knows the fight's not over. Uh, so when we think of that monumental task, I leave it to more abstract thinkers than myself, tacticians and strategists to rebuild the Democratic Party. Uh, my job is to tell the stories of where we are now, to describe the present evil and to tell the stories also of people who have struggled and who have been in that struggle for a long time to let us know that we can keep going. But the struggle that Harry Belafonte and others led, of course, has been undone in many ways by Donald Trump. After all, Donald yeah. Trump ripped the Band-Aid off the wounds of racism with the Bertha conspiracy, which, as a matter of fact, uh, Putin and company helped him focus on that when he went to Moscow in uh, November 2013 for the Miss Universe contest. He expected to meet with Putin at the Nobu restaurant in Moscow, but ended up with some of Putin's oligarchs who gave him his marching orders to come back to the United States, work with a, a, a FSB plant out here in Orange County to activate the Bertha movement, which in effect what it's done is it's given American racists permission to be racist again. It's lifted up this rock and they've all come out from under it. I mean, I don't know at what point it'll be okay to use the N-word, but they certainly, you can see this attack on wokeness is exactly, is in fact a part of this movement to make racism acceptable again. Yeah, although I would argue, and I, 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 I try to tell a story in The Undertow, the, the, the title essay, the, the biggest part of the book, really is about the undertow of racism and whiteness and white supremacy that runs like a river through our, our whole history, right? And on January 6, 2021, uh, I sat watching in horror as we all did. I've been reporting on the right right-wing movements for 20 years. Um, I was already calling it a slow coup, and even so, I looked with horror. And 
And then we saw almost in real time video of a 35 year old white woman from Southern California, very blue Southern California, um, named Ashley Babbitt, an Air Force veteran. And she led a mob that attacked police and uh, a uh, was trying to get into the speaker's lounge where a number of Congress members were. They smashed a window. She leapt up into it and a Capitol Police officer shot her. Um, she's a white woman, a blonde haired white woman. And the officer who shot her happens to be a black man. And watching that as a student of American mythology, I knew exactly what they were going to do with that because that's the old story. That's the lynching story. And I think it's important to understand American myth as well as American history because that's the fabric from which they sew their kind of fascist alternate reality. So I followed Ashley Babbitt's martyr myth in the making. I actually followed it across the country, speaking to people who dreamed they saw Ashley Babbitt, people who made paintings of Ashley Babbitt, people who believed wrongly that they had met Ashley Babbitt, people who imagined her with angel wings, people who imagined her as the first casualty of the revolution. They called her their Crispus Attucks. Crispus Attucks, uh, supposedly the first person shot in the American Revolution, who was, by the way, a black Wampanoag man, a black indigenous man. Ashley Babbitt, a white woman, replaced that. And what's interesting about Ashley Babbitt is I also wanted to look at her life, the undertow that had pulled her into it. It wasn't for her birtherism. In fact, her second favorite president after Donald Trump, Barack Obama. And, and you look, well, then this person's a fool. She voted for Obama twice. She was not always a fascist. She was a person who for many years of her life tried to do the right thing, really thought about it in a way that not everybody does. She was no hero. She was subject to all kinds of white grievances and so on. Um, Trumpism helped, or, or birtherism helped uh, uh, launch Trump. And, and I, 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 I would probably disagree with you. I think, I think Trump could have thought of birtherism all on his own. He, 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 Trump didn't need help uh, being a racist. Um, but Trump himself and the kind of wealth that emanated from him, the myth of wealth, that reality TV had created for him was so attractive to Ashley Babbitt by then, her business deep in debt, her life not going the way it had, a woman who had been through eight deployments, who was two war generations deep into America's long war. She'd been in Iraq and Afghanistan. She couldn't explain what was happening in her life. Homelessness was booming around her and instead of compassion, she started to feel angry. A man defecated in her lawn, and that may have been the turning point for her. Trump said, yes, yes, embrace that anger. Give in, lean back, the undertow will carry you. And I think that's what we have to contend with because so many of the people I met reporting the undertow, uh, they weren't always like this. This, this is, this is, Fascism has a gravity, and, and we need to recognize that. Otherwise, we're going to be tricked into thinking, well, there's good guys and bad guys, and the good guys will outnumber the bad guys. Um, not if we keep seeing uh, so many good guys or decent people seduced, lied, pulled into the undertow, into this myth. Well, Jeff Charlotte, I thank you so much for joining us, and, and I thank you so much for your incredibly important book, The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. Thank you, Ian. Always a pleasure to talk with you. And again, I've been speaking with Jeff Charlotte, who's a New York Times bestselling author and editor of eight books, including The Family, The Secret Fundamentalism at the Heart of American Power, adapted into a Netflix documentary series, and This Brilliant Darkness. His reporting on LGBTQ rights around the world has received the National Magazine Award, the Molly Ivins Prize, and Outright International's Outspoken Award. And he's the professor in the art of writing at Dartmouth College, and his latest book, a New York Times bestseller, is The Undertow, Scenes from a Slow Civil War. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us by going to backgroundbriefing.org donate or publictruthmedia.org where you will find our non-profit Public Truth Media Foundation, where your tax-deductible donations, large and small, keep us broadcasting. And if you missed any of today's program and would like to explore our vast archives, you can find us at backgroundbriefing.org, where we'll include extended interviews searchable by topic, 
and have made it easy for you to sign up for daily email updates that provide links to resources, articles, and books discussed on the program. Also, you can find links there to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts, and we also encourage your ratings and reviews on these platforms. Find us on Twitter and Facebook at Ian Masters Media, and please do help us reach more listeners by sharing this program with friends, family, and colleagues. And I'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org. Bye for now. The guy that lived next door in 305 Took the kids to the park and disappeared by half